Hello, this is Arlie Proctor. Welcome to an Atomic Bombshell Extra, an even deeper dive into the life of Clara Minx-Devlin, the woman J. Edgar Hoover rightly called the most dangerous woman alive. Now, if you've heard our 10-part podcast, you know all about her astonishing life, her romances with JFK, Francois Truffaut, Castro, Howard Hughes, how she saved the world during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and also her career as a film noir icon and the queen of 1950s teen exploitation. But Ms. Devlin's own autobiography reveals much more about her life and loves. I'm here with my friend and colleague, Skylar DeWolf, film scholar and historian at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Today, we're gonna to delve into a forgotten classic and one of the first touchstones of feminist cinema. I'm talking about Minx Devlin's collaboration with her friend, Ida Lupino, I Murderous. Now, Skylar, give us some backstory here. Why is Ida Lupina so important in film history? Wow. Well, have we got an hour? Uh, Ida Lupino was possibly the most versatile talent in 20th century filmmaking. She was born in Britain during a World War I air raid. Her family had been performers for literally centuries. She started acting in British movies as a kid. And by the time she was barely out of her teens, she was a solid but second tier female star at Warner Brothers in Hollywood. But Ida wasn't just an actress, she was brilliant. And by the late 1940s, she was doing what she wanted to do most, which was direct movies. And that was something really no other woman in Hollywood was doing at that time. She made great dramas like The Bigamist with Edmund O'Brien and a fabulous noir called The Hitchhiker, also with the Edmund O'Brien. Really just a, an amazing, versatile talent. And it was then, uh, I think, during that uh, period when she was under contract to RKO or doing films released by RKO that she met, that Minx actually met Ida Lupino during the making, remaking and re-remaking <laughs> of the riotous non-classic Devil Girl of Cannibal Island. Yes. I think Ida Lupino was the third of five directors on that film. And uh, when they worked together for, I think it was five weeks, none of the Lupino footage was used in the ultimate uh, movie. They became friends. They were both smart, savvy film vets. They agreed that if Lupino could find just the right vehicle, Minx would agree to lend her name to raise the money to make a film they could both be proud of. Yes, and let me just say a little about where Minx was in her career at this time. She was just coming off They Came in Outer Space, which as listeners no doubt recall, was her smash hit movie in the ineffable style of Catwomen of the Moon, another big hit of the time. And we should mention that uh, They Came in Outer Space is also hailed by feminists as a proto-classic. It's always amazing to me that all the films in this debased subgenre, Catwomen of the Moon, Queen of Outer Space, They Came in Outer Space, uh, they all featured smart, clever women who completely outsmarted the hunky dolts who uh, bumble onto their planet and uh, wreak havoc. Absolutely. As usual in these films, the men are idiots and the women control everything. Now, Minx at this time was waiting to divorce Herbert W. Zussman, and she had an opening in her schedule. Exactly. So Ida Lupino gave her the script. Minx loved it, and she agreed to work for scale against a percentage of the profits. Again, really a shrewd move. So here's how Minx herself described the, the film in her autobiography. It's a very brief. It's only a single paragraph. She said, I inkled the Zussman banner and uh, to do a quick favor for my gal pal, Ida Lupino. I spent six hectic but happy days starting in her indie quickie, I Murderous, about a smart, ambitious woman driven to commit homicide by the stifling, mindless conformity of the times. The picture has its virtues, including a daring lesbian angle and a shock scene at the end where I burn up in the electric chair. 
Unfortunately, Allied Artists dumps it and it sinks without a trace. Kids, there's no money in being six decades ahead of your time. Exactly. When I said it was a shrewd move for Mings to take a percentage of the profits, I meant it would have been if things had worked out. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> it, it was kind of a mess. But uh, anyway, like so many Minx movies, I Murderous was rediscovered by feminist film scholars because it was a public domain release by the 1990s. Feminist film scholar Molly Haskell wrote a 20-page piece in the New York Review of Books praising it. And there have been persistent rumors in Hollywood about remaking it. Merle Streep uh, said she wanted to do it. Julia Roberts was actually attached to a project at one point. Sandra Bullock uh, has been mentioned. So, so what changed? What, why did women embrace this movie? Probably because it is one of the most caustic cinematic depictions of female repression disguised inside a conventional proto-noir melodrama ever made. Yeah, I think in order to really understand that, uh, let's run down the, the story of I Murder. So uh, in the film, we open on Gilda Powers, Minx Devlin, sweating in a dank jail cell one hour from riding the lightning in the death house electric chair. She speaks directly to the camera. <clears throat> I murderous indeed. Did those 12 men good and true who sentenced me to death know what lurks in a woman's heart? Have they ever been consumed by a passion so magnificent that it approaches, even becomes a kind of madness? My nightmare began one fateful afternoon six months ago. So now we flashback. Gilda Powers is the star of a syndicated Sob Sister radio broadcast, Heartbeat of the City. She's just about to go on the air when L.A. police detective Mike Rockwell, played by Howard Duff, who at one point was actually, at this point in her life, was actually married to Idolapino, barges in demanding she help him capture a woman who has murdered her husband. Using her skill as a broadcaster, Gilda convinces the woman to turn herself in. And to thank her, Mike buys Gilda steak dinner. They fall in love. He convinces her to give up her career, bad move, move to Los Angeles and become a stay-at-home housewife all in the span of 90 action-packed seconds. They did not waste time back then. <laughs> well, at their wedding reception, Gilda meets Mike's social circle, his fellow cops, and their wives. The most formidable member of this circle is the imperious Zenobia Barlow, a perfectly cast Agnes Moorhead. She's the wife of Mike's captain, Magnus Barlow, played by the sandpaper-voiced tough guy Charles McGraw. Well, even as Zenobia puts Gilda in her place as an intruder and second-rate homemaker, she misses the nervous glances that Magnus shoots at Gilda. They obviously have a history. Magnus pulls Gilda aside and begs her to meet him later at Nick's Bucket O' Fluff, a cocktail lounge rendezvous. Now at Nick's, uh, Magnus reveals that he's still obsessed with Gilda. We discover their backstory. 20 years ago, Gilda was a headline striptease artist who billed herself as Miss Gilda Gaga Gazanga, the gal with more shake than the Frisco Quake. She was in an abusive marriage that had produced a deeply troubled daughter named Viva. Magnus was a rookie cop in love with her. Gilda murdered her hubby with a shotgun and Magnus helped her cover it up. But then he married Zenobia because Zenobia's father was the police chief who could ensure his future in the department. The marriage was a catastrophe from day one, and now Magnus has a plan to save them both. Gilda will help Magnus murder Zenobia. Then she'll divorce Mike and meet him in New York, where he'll become a private detective and she can resume her radio career. Gilda agrees. They kiss. 
Well, the night of the murder plot, Magnus shows up at Gilda's home, assuming that she has suffocated Zenobia after Magnus drugged her nightly double martini. Then Zenobia enters, looking for Magnus. Magnus pulls a gun on her. He reveals the plot and is ready to shoot her, but Gilda blocks him. Gilda tells Magnus that she loves him, but... If she lets him shoot Zenobia, he'll have something on her that he can use to turn her into a slave. Gilda grabs the gun, kisses Magnus, and gut shoots him. She throws down the gun, and Zenobia reflexively picks it up. Just then, Mike Rockwell enters, and Gilda's plot becomes clear. She claims Zenobia shot Magnus because she learned of his obsessive love for Gilda. Zenobia admires the elegance of Gilda's plot. Get rid of Magnus so Mike can have his job and put Zenobia in the big house for murder. Just when we think Gilda's going to get away with it, her wayward daughter Viva, played by Tuesday Weld, steps out. She's seen and heard everything. She reveals that she's always known that her mother shotgunned her father and has been waiting for her to make a fatal misstep. Oh, and one more thing. Viva reveals that she and Zenobia are lovers. Well, Gilda picks up Magnus's gun, ready to use it on Viva and frame it as a suicide. She tries to sell this to Mike as the ultimate career maker, imagining the headline, LAPD super dick cracks sapphic homicide suicide thrill kill slayings. Just as Gilda pulls the trigger, Mike leaps in front of Viva and takes the bullet. As Mike expires, his partner Duke enters and arrests Gilda. Now we come back to that very famous uh, uh, button on the film, which is all back to Gilda, who's strapped into old Sparky. She looks at the camera and says, when you speak of me, remember that I died as I lived. Defiant, passionate, laughing through the tears, undefeated. (laughs) At that moment, Gilda is incinerated on camera in an analog special effect that predicts the death of the Nazis in the first Indiana Jones movie. Wow. Well, (laughs) amazing. The key here, yeah. The key here is that Gilda's character is perfectly well adjusted until she becomes a conventional housewife under the thumb of another queen bee housewife. And this is what drives her around the bend. In fact, that's really framed up nicely in a a famous scene that's uh, usually referred to by film buffs as the wifey wear soliloquy. Now, in this scene, Minx, as Gilda, has taken a job selling a Tupperware knockoff called Wifey Wear. Now, as I read the excerpt from the script, you can hear her losing her marbles. So this is Minx in a uh, suburban living room talking to a group of housewives holding some Tupperware type things. She says, welcome, ladies, and thanks so much for joining me to learn more about the many wonders of Wifey Wear, the enchanting mealtime miracle. It's also the perfect picnic partner. This three-piece set of nesting bowls is so airtight that when you open them, they actually burp. They release trapped air. Now, you may have heard the Tupperware, excuse me. Now, you may have heard Tupperware claim that they came up with the airtight burp seal first. That's because there are a lot of lying, thieving bastards. In fact, they stole the airproof seal from Wifeyware, taking bread out of the mouth of our beloved founder, Mr. Dwight W. Wifey. And for that, they should rot in hell for eternity. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, well, this is the time of my presentation when I invite you, the happy homemaker, to learn what an outstanding product Wifey Fair really is. Unbreakable, lightweight, spill-proof, child-safe, colorful, and best of all, you can use each item again and again. Did it ever really live anyway? 
Did anyone care even when it was, quote, useful, unquote? Does anyone even remember? No, it's completely forgotten, gone, filthy, rotten, garbage, rotting for eternity until the sun itself dies and it, along with everything else in this rotten world, rots, rots, rots. Wow, I, I can picture every shot of that scene as you read that. <laughs> That was fantastic. The push-in on her face is just, it's, it's a classic. Yeah, that's slow. I mean, that that push-in's a little shaky because they couldn't hire, you know, the absolute top people to work on this movie. Right. But I <laughs> really did the best with what she had. Well, as usual, Minx was way ahead of the cultural power curve about how suburbia can drive you crazy. And then also the introduction of the lesbian plot between Minx's rival and her daughter, which is a really daring flip of the playbook that was used in movies like Mildred Pierce. That's right. Okay, you know, well, thanks, Skylar. And uh, that's this episode. Uh, Skylar Wolf and I will be back soon with another Atomic Bombshell Extra. In the meantime... Feel free to revisit the original 10-part podcast of The Atomic Bombshell and do your own deep dive into the life of Minx Devlin by going to Amazon and grabbing your own copy of Ms. Devlin's riotous tell-all autobiography, The Atomic Bombshell. Thanks so much for listening.